I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 11th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about Serena Williams' victory at Wimbledon, which tied Steffi Graf's mark of 22 major championships. We'll also be joined by Ken Early to discuss Portugal's shocking, moth-ridden victory over France in the title game of soccer's European Championships. And finally, Megan O'Rourke will be here to assess the five women who will represent the United States in gymnastics in Rio. Stefan Fatsis is off again this week, but joining me as always from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Hello. Mike. Hello. How are you? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Very good. Any moth-related injuries or encounters? Well, I failed to wash my sweaters <laughs> this weekend, which is just inviting moth-related mm-hmm. injury. I've had so many battles with moths in the sweater context over the years. Me it's too, vicious. my God. I am, I'm fighting a constant, like, it's a war. It's like a multi-front, multi-year war for me against moths. 
All right, let's change the rundown of the show uh, <laughs> because we need to put moths first. Hey, it's June Thomas uh, filling in for Stefan, one of my dearest and longest standing friends in the Slate.com internet universe, one of the hosts of the Double X Gab Fest, the editor of Slate's LGBTQ blog, Outward, the world's biggest fan of the ESPN Sunday morning show, The Sports Reporters, and a frequent moth adversary. <laughs> Hello, June. Hello, Josh. So we must say, Mike, we have to apologize to June. She left England to get away from soccer. Yeah. That was explicitly the reason, and now we're dragging her back into it. Yeah. She she was uh, a Brexit pioneer. Yeah. <laughs> I was a fix-it. So if June is not talking during the, the, the soccer segment, then that's, that's some insider information. Now you know why. It's because I got bo- my fingers in my ear going, shut up about this bloody game. <laughs> In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about a sport that June actually likes but never watches. Um, that's the uh, the basketball. We're going to take another bite at NBA free agency. All right. We'll talk about June's obsession with the Zach Lowe podcast. Oh, it's and a good one. It is. Uh, you can sign up for Slate Plus to hear that and to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcast. If you do sign up, you'll get a free two-week trial. It's worth it. Get it at slate.com slash hangup plus. Do sign up. I think we should have that always as the tag. Do sign up. All right. Before we start this segment, I want to stipulate that June followed around the women's tennis tour in the 1970s and is liable to drop a Maria Bueno reference on us (laughs) at any second. Be prepared, Mike. All right. Better than actually dropping Maria Bueno on us. (laughs) On Saturday at the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, Serena Williams beat Angelique Kerber in straight sets to win her second consecutive and seventh overall Wimbledon singles title. She came back a few hours later with her sister Venus to win her sixth Wimbledon doubles title. A few hours later, she paired with a guy named Giles to win her 18th Wimbledon mixed doubles croquet title, probably. (laughs) Serena now has 22 major championships in singles, tied with Steffi Graf for the most ever in the open era. My favorite stat from the tournament, and maybe this is not a stat, but it's a fact, is that she has now attended the Wimbledon Winners Ball with all four members of Men's Tennis's Big Four, this year adding Andy Murray to her complete set of tennis action figures. Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Andy Murray, all pictured in uh, evening attire with Serena Williams at Wimbledon. So here's how I want to start. I want to put forward a theory for you guys. So Serena's 34. She's about two months younger than Federer. Carl Bialik pointed out in 538, she's defied the age curve of the sport. She's won nine of the 17 majors since she turned 30. We always love athletes more as they get older, but that's usually accompanied by a diminishment of their skills. Federer, for his part, he's also defied the age curve, but he still hasn't won a major in a bunch of years. So Serena is in this unique position where she's simultaneously become more beloved and she's also just getting better at her sport. Um, At the same time, she's struggled by her standards since winning four straight Grand Slams in 2014 and 2015. She failed to get the calendar Grand Slam at the U.S. Open last year. She then lost in the last two major finals, uh, the Aussie Open and French Open this year. So she's more beloved. She's better at her sport. She's shown a little bit of vulnerability. So this is my theory, Mike. We are now at peak 
Serena Williams. She will never be as good and as popular as she is on this day, Monday, July 11th, 2016. This is it. But what if she tweets something cool or has something on her Instagram or in any way gets Beyonce involved? There are still moves that she could make, I think. She was in Lemonade. That's what I was going to say. She was in Lemonade. I meant to add that to my intro, but you guys brought it in for me. Um, There was this period in her career where – I mean there were two different periods. There there were some fallow ones where she was perceived, I think rightly so, as this hothead like – telling a line's people that that she wanted to shove balls down their throat. And then there were periods where she was just winning everything and yeah. kind of unfairly to her, we just got used to it and got bored with her. Well, she was also never – you know, these were whole tournaments where she never dropped a set. And so she's shown a little more vulnerability by – you know, by if you strategically lose every fourth Grand Slam, it makes <laughs> it, the other three really compelling. She also had a period though, right, where she – wasn't really that focused on tennis or that was the rap anyway, that she and her sister Venus were interested in other stuff. They were interested in fashion. They were distracted. And I remember, you know, my good friend, Mike Lupica, well, my good friend in the sense that I watch him on the sports reporters, uh, you know, pointed out that um, at some point later in their careers, both might look back and say, oh, man, I wish we'd focused those years. And at the time, I just thought that was Lupica being Lupica. But now I think maybe he was right that Oh, they, come on. Wait a second. W- you just you just proved <laughs> Mike Lubica wrong for the millionth time. There's no way that they're going to look back and uh, regret what the, their, their choice is. Maybe they'll look back on what Jason Whitlock said and said, we should have been in better <laughs> shape. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there, they, they there's would, no way that they that they would have been around this long still winning if they had just been like type A super driven about tennis. Like look at all the stars that have retired so young because they get burned out, June. So you think it's not about the wear and tear on their bodies, but just the fact that they weren't bound out mentally on just showing up at the same places every year for 20 years. That So it's it's about just still being able to go and and show up and do this damn thing one more time. I think it's a combo. I mean, the saving the wear and tear. They also didn't play all these tournaments as juniors. I don't know if right. you can count that as like wear and tear on their bodies, but they had this very unconventional upbringing in the sport. Um, mm-hmm. They've been unconventional champions and stars. And I think I am inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt, given that Serena definitely and Venus of her era are the greatest players maybe ever but definitely of like their generation yeah no i don't pay much attention to tennis anymore so i stipulate that but i also mean this was something that obviously is a factor in every sport but somehow in tennis seems even more salient is the fact that you know it does matter who the other players are at the time you know um the especially in recent Maria Bueno in the seventies, <laughs> for example. Hey, no. So you know, Serena really hasn't had a rival. You know, tennis, especially women's tennis, is a sport where we really focus on rivals: Navratilova, Evert, uh, King Court. Um, I won't go even further back, but it seems like in the last few years, if you are somebody who really just kind of looks at oh, who was Serena or like a few years ago Venus playing in the final, you end up kind of saying, "Sorry, who?" No. Often that's ignorance, uh, and I, so I don't, you know, suggest that that is a completely fair position. But there have not been, you know, there aren't 
it's not a, a tremendously strong period right now, or there isn't another strong rival other than perhaps Venus. Is that right, or is that just a, a false impression that I get by skating too far on the surface? Well, Sharapova is suspended, and mm-hmm. she's not as strong as some of the past uh, winners. But yes, there's right. Remember, uh, Marion Bartoli did well, and then she retired. Lina, oh, we're going to see this influx of Chinese players, and then where are they? And then I don't even know how to pronounce the French Open winner's name. It's Muguruza. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. So yes, I <laughs> uh, do think there's a bunch to what June just said. So Sharapova, even when she was at the top of uh, her game, Serena destroyed her just systematically, physically, psychologically, <laughs> emotionally. I mean, that was no competition. Victoria Azarenka was Serena's biggest rival for a while and was someone who was just mentally right there with her and just did not give an inch. Great all-around game. Got hurt and is not been able to get back to that pinnacle. Kerber this year has been great. Like she has been kind of not a, a journey woman because she's been in the top 10 for a long time, but she's been in, I think, 30 grand slams before she won one or before she made the final. I heard that statistic around and she was great in Australia and she was great again in this Wimbledon final. It was an amazing final. Uh, Serena, as you know, Mike alluded to before, there have been some instances where she just wins and the player on the other side of the court does not bring the best out of her. Like, she had to win that match uh, on Saturday. She had to take it from Kerber. There are only two breaks of serve in the whole match, one in each set. There are amazing rallies, and Serena had to be at the top of her game. So that rivalry is just a short-term one. We're not going to be talking about Serena-Kerber, um, but, like, <laughs> Justine Inna was one who really pushed Serena for a while, and then she retired. So mm-hmm. I think you're totally right, June, that there have been these kind of mini rivalries over the course of a year or a couple years, and there just hasn't been one across an entire generation that we're going to look back on as like the Serena equivalent of the Chris Martina. I, by I'm the like way, really I, sounding like a tennis expert today. Yeah, good job. <laughs> I also want to point out that even though your stat was about she's done the uh, the winner's ball with all four of the men, she didn't win Wimbledon. But since her championships go back to uh, the last century, she's you know been co-champions with with Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi. So she spans the era. I guess she's just really underappreciated for a number of the reasons we've talked about on the show. I don't think that she has an uninviting or off-putting personality. I think maybe social media or, you know, back when she was younger and the one story was these two girls from the inner city who were created by their father. This was 1999. This was Mm -hmm. 2000. And we had to look at tennis in a certain way. And it was all mediated by, you know, people telling us the story at networks. But now that women... Um, all athletes, but certainly strong women athletes have the ability to put their own story forth. In addition to this is your peak Serena theory. In addition to the natural love we have with the older athletes, she is becoming, you know, we're understanding her more. The fierceness of her is less off-putting maybe to middle America as uh, as America ages and gets more comfortable with, uh, you know, non-lily white champions. And yes, also let's point out the fact that she has chilled out a little bit. Like these days when she smashes a racket, it's for effect and to motivate her. Although that incident, you know, if that took place in 2000, she'd probably get widely castigated, especially in the uh, London media that's so unforgiving when it talks about how you're supposed to comport yourself at Wimbledon. Well, she's just so popular now among younger people. I mean, she's obviously 
um, a hero to huge, huge numbers of people, and rightly so. And I think, you know, as you're saying, like older people have warmed her too. We are at peak Serena is the argument that I'm making. Yes. But June, um, before we wrap up, yes. there's always this citation in tennis records. It's like in the open era, such yeah. and such, in the open era. So Margaret Court has the record for overall Grand Slams, but mm-hmm. many of hers were not in the open era. Right. And you hate Margaret Court. So. <laughs> no, I would never say that I hate anybody, but it's true that when I was a child, I did borrow Margaret Court's biography from the library, and I could not stop myself from, like, arguing with her and the inanity that she was putting forth in that book. And I did deface a library book from the local oh, wow. library. Yeah. So that's, that, that is the extent that's, that shows how strongly I feel because I was a partisan of her rival, Billie Jean King. Um, and you know, it's funny. Um, I'm, I know I'm speaking before you've really asked your question, but Hey, I'm a guest. <laughs> I can do that. Um, in a way, uh, as different as Margaret Court is, I mean, the, some of the reasons that I disliked Margaret Court, I mean, part, really, it was, it was just that, um, I preferred Billie Jean King. So it was just a pure, uh, you know, try getting a Real Madrid person to say something good about, uh, whatever that, uh, Messi? Bar- no, but whatever that Barcelona team is called. <laughs> anyway. Barcelona. Um, <laughs> Barca. Um, so it's mostly that, but, there were other sort of things around Margaret Court, which was that she was an individual. She wouldn't join in when the players were creating the the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association. She, she you know, she was uh, a more conservative figure, literally a conservative. She was a, a you know a very Christian player at a time when that when most of the players were sort of political and and feminist. Um, and in a sense, there are some similarities with the Williams sisters. They were typically not part of the of the gang, you know. They they certainly challenged the WTA rules, and in a sense, they were sort of saying, you know, we just don't want to take part in this. You know, they they challenged the rules about having to do playing different kinds of tournaments, you know, which the WTA insists upon. Um, clearly, they are political. They're black women in America. They are, and they've always been a little bit, they, they never were that sort of Margaret Court type of very proper, you know, they, they always mess with the media. Um, having seen them at press conferences, they just love to give wacky answers just because they can't stand mm-hmm. uh, to do what journalists are trying to make them to do. So they're, but so, so I'm I'm kind of contradicting myself even as I finish the my well, the, the my, other contradiction my statement. Uh, <laughs> yes the other obvious contradiction is that Venus in particular pushed for equal pay which is yes. incredibly yes. Um, important political and feminist move on her part absolutely absolutely and and, I, and so I, I as much as I want to make my case I also take it back immediately but anyway back they're to your com- they're complicated they're complicated people they yeah are. so back to my question and and the open era is you know very simplistic explanation is that it's when tennis became professionalized. Right. And so we don't really mention Margaret Court uh, as the leader in Grand Slams. We say Serena tied Steffi Graf, and there's the little kind of caveat asterisk. Is that fair? Um, You know, the tournaments that Margaret Court was playing in, there were many fewer players. They were not necessarily the best players. People didn't really go to Australia as much back then. Right. So, you know, is it fair that we kind of written – those folks a little bit out of the history books. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I know uh, Mike was getting ready to answer too, but it, it's those were the rules, you know. That was 
those tournaments existed. They were the Grand Slam. You know, people, we don't say we're going to take um, Rod Laver's Grand Slam away from him because, you know, there were only three nations playing in the Australian Open back then. It did certainly give Australians a huge advantage. Um <laughs> But those, you know, it wasn't like the Australians were pushing for that. That was that was how it was. I mean, clearly the big difference, um, there are many, many differences, equipment, the, the conditioning, uh, but also the fact that the really good players, if they weren't independently wealthy, uh, had to go and play professional tournaments to, you know, support their families. Uh, so clearly it's a very, very different style of uh, tournament, but... That is, you know, you. I, I don't also feel terribly comfortable just saying, so that doesn't count. It still counts. Yeah, and I'm on to to burnish the point there a little bit. I am on the WTA tennis site, and there are some fun facts. <laughs> I don't know how fun these facts are, like uh, most three sets played. That would be Carla Suarez Navarro. But where does Serena rank this year in tournaments won? Tell us. She hasn't won very many. I would say like, uh, you know, Sixth. She is she titles overall one. She has won uh two titles, I believe. And because this is as of June twenty seventh, two thousand sixteen, <laughs> so it does not take into account Wimbledon. She had only Sloane played Sloane Stevens has won three. Yes. Sloane Stevens, Victoria Azarenka, and Carolyn Garcia have all won three. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Carolyn Garcia has won two. So, right, Sloane Stevens and Victoria Azarenka have won three. So if this weren't the Open, she'd be the third best player right now. In fact, Coco Vandeweghe is uh, <laughs> right now right behind Serena in total titles overall one. Isn't that a character from this, from Seinfeld? Coco Vandeweghe? It's Ernie Vandeweghe's granddaughter. <laughs> it's, Vandeweghe, I said it's. I think we... <laughs> Art Vandalay, as I think who you're thinking of, Jim. Um, yeah. All right. She is, though, an architect of some great tennis play. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Sunday in Paris, a bunch of Portuguese men who are not Cristiano Ronaldo ruined the coronation of the homestanding French national team, earning a shocking 1-0 victory thanks to a goal by substitute Adair in the second half of extra time. It was a strange ending to a strange tournament, one in which Portugal finished third in its group behind Hungary and Iceland, yet advanced to the knockout stage, avoided the likes of Germany, Italy, Spain, and France, at least until the final, all of whom were on the other side of the bracket, and didn't win a game in regulation time until the semifinals against Wales, which is, after all, Wales. On Sunday, Ronaldo was forced to leave the game after France's Dimitri Payet ran over his left leg, and one of the moths that had swarmed the field before the match alighted on his eyeball as he laid on the field in tears. But Portugal seemed to play better, a little bit better, as a team after Ronaldo left, though many commentators slagged them afterwards for playing boring, defensive-minded soccer. Joining us now to discuss is Ken Early of the Irish Times and the Second Captain's Podcast, who is in the Stade de France on Sunday and is now being uh, bullied about a French airport. Hello, Ken. Hi, Josh. How are you? 
I'm I'm well. Um, in your post match column, you wrote that Euro 2016 was a mediocre tournament. It culminated on Sunday night in a mediocre final and the coronation of a mediocre champion. And yet, you are actually more positive about this Portuguese <laughs> team than most of the other commentators I saw. Well, I think Portugal won everyone over. Um, you know, well, they they were heroic. You know, Portugal were in the Lions then. I mean, it turned out that the Lions were in fairly timorous uh, mood. Uh, but Portugal, you know, the fans were outnumbered in the stadium. The players were outmatched on the field. Um, they lost the best player in the history of their country's football after just eight minutes to an injury, although it took them another 15 before he, he eventually uh, gave up the ghost. And they and they prevailed. I mean, it's, it was an amazing thing to witness. I mean, it was a terrible game, but it was a fantastic story. <laughs> yeah, so did you have sympathy for Ronaldo? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, about how he's the man perhaps in the history of the human race who's the least, uh, you know, easy to empathize with. But um, how did you feel seeing him lying on the pitch with uh, moths on his face? I think he would have to be inhuman not to feel some sympathy for Cristiano Ronaldo at that moment. Well, either that or you'd have to work for the Barcelona sports press. Um, <laughs> you can see <laughs> you can see some of the Catalan newspapers already uh, – or their, their um, headlines for, you know, to hail the uh, Portugal's victory was, you know, without Cristiano, Portugal win. You know, they're really rubbing in the fact that he wasn't actually on the field when they uh, scored the goal that won the game. Um, you know, I mean, nothing like that has happened to Ronaldo before, you know, in a, in a big game. He has played big finals when he's been a little bit injured, a little bit below par, but he's never been forced off like that. This was really maybe the biggest match of his life. I mean, he's won a lot of stuff with his clubs. But, you know, he's played for, he's won the Champions League with Real Madrid and with Manchester United. They're the kind of clubs that win the Champions League. Maybe they would have won the Champions League if Ronaldo hadn't been there. To win the international tournament with Portugal, it, you know, it's, it's obviously something that Portugal have never done before. Uh, he's kind of led them to the promised land, although, he's, you know, it's, I suppose it's a bit Moses-like. You know, he led them just to the brink of the promised land and then had to watch from the bench as they, uh, as they finished the job. But I thought that was kind of a, a nice element to this story. There's no way that Portugal would have got to the final without Ronaldo and the goals that he scored. So they couldn't have done it without him, but he couldn't have done it without them either. So it was a nice, it was a nice sort of reciprocity. Uh, you know, it was, it was good that that team got to prove that they're not a one-man team. Um, but, you know, still nobody's in no doubt as to who the, the main man really was. So, Ken, you said that Portugal won us over, but I think it's more accurate to say that Portugal drew after 90 and then advanced on penalties or possibly an extra time. And I was wondering if you thought that the manner in which they only actually won uh, one game against Wales, yes, certainly they had a golden goal. Uh, well, it's not a golden goal. They had an extra goal in this game and I guess against Croatia. But beyond the style of play, the fact that they wouldn't have even advanced out of the group stage under old rules, the fact that it took so long for them to eventually win these games and sometimes on penalties, does that taint it at all? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, Portugal could, Portugal could look back at 2004 when they hosted the European Championships and they were beaten by a Greek team that, okay, I did actually manage to win the games um, in normal time, but was very defensive, very dour. Uh, side, um, we were very unpopular winners really at the time everywhere uh, outside Greece, and say, well, you know, this is, this is sometimes football. You, you do what you've got to do. I mean, Portugal had almost the opposite problem of France. France's problem 
was we have so many good players, we're not quite sure which players to put in the field. We're not quite sure how the team should be made up. We've got too many options. We don't know which is the best one. Didier Deschamps is groping around, groping around for, the, for the best combination of players out of all of these talented parts that he had. With Portugal, it was a question of we really don't have you know, enough good players to, to put out a convincing team here. They had to ask Ronaldo to play up front. He hates playing up front, um, but he had to do it because they didn't have anyone else. They had Nani. Uh, playing up front. You know, this kind of uh, inconsistent winger um, for years at Manchester United is playing centre forward in the champion, uh, European Championship final. I mean, the resources that Portugal had to work with um, are, are nothing like uh, those that France had. So, really, the job that they did in putting out a team that was as structured and as well organised uh, and as competitive as they managed to do. It's a, it's a tremendous coaching achievement by Fernando Santos. The testament, I think, to the work also of, you know, I mean, Ronaldo obviously was, was the most important individual player. But don't overlook the contribution of Pepe. You know, Pepe, this lunatic um, at Real Madrid. I mean, we've seen him do crazy things. We've seen him do stupid things. You know, he's a cheat. He's, he's got a violent streak. He hasn't always been a kind of a model of a defender, you know, or a captain that you'd look up to. But... What a leader for this Portugal team. I mean, he really showed uh, why his teammates at Real Madrid think so highly of him. I mean, he's, he's not a popular player outside the teams that he plays for. Maybe that will change a little bit after what he did for Portugal over this tournament. So the postmortems of this event, um, including one written on Slate by Frank Four, um, a lot of them argue that this um, you know, quadrennial tournament, which... A lot of people have touted as being better than the World Cup, stronger competition. Um, you know, it's a tougher gauntlet to go through. That it's been ruined. That this was entirely mediocre from start to finish. That having 24 teams led to a bunch of really bad games. That the tournament got the kind of poor champion that it deserved. What do you make of those arguments? Well, I think there's definitely something to those arguments. Um, uh, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, if you look at it on a technical level, uh, if you look at it just, in, you know, in pure sporting terms, um, there were a lot of bad games. There were some awful uh, games. There were there were too many mismatches. Uh, teams were, uh, games where one team decides from the outset that all they want to do is defend because they really, there's no other way that they can compete in this game. Um that definitely happened. And, you know, when you, when you look back through it, there, there haven't been any classic games. I mean, you know, the build-up to France-Portugal, a lot of it was, uh, was focusing on, on previous games they played. I mean, there was, there was a semi-final in Euro 2000, which was really, you know, Titanic stuff. Zidane on one side, Figo on the other. Um, you know, it felt like two classic teams contesting a really high-quality game. The 1984 uh, game between France and Portugal, 1-3-2 by France, another absolute stone-cold classic, you know, the one, the one that happened last night was, was really nothing to compare. Look, to the rest of the tournament, there haven't really been that many good games. There have been a couple of exciting ones. Wales against Belgium uh, sticks out, but not too many. On the other hand, it's not just about what happens on the field, you know, from a, from a narrowly kind of sporting point of view. There's also all of the stories that happen. Uh, all of the kind of drama. I mean, that, the, the game last night, just like the game last night, for example, it's a bad game. It's, it's one side sort of clinging on, hoping to get lucky. Eventually they did. Uh, the, you know, the best player on the field has to go off after a few minutes. Um, one of the teams 
underperformance grotesque. He just freezes on the night. You know, there's a lot of a lot of things about it. it was not a good game, but it was it was a very gripping thing to watch. You know, if if you're thinking about it in human terms, in dramatic terms, you know, why do eighty thousand people go to watch a, a football game? Really, are we talking about eighty thousand? Football connoisseurs, half the people in the stand don't even have a clue what's going on in the, in the field, really. It's, it's a question of, it's a sort of human element um, that really draws people's interest. Like the story of what happened with Ronaldo is what people will remember. There are a lot of memorable moments in this tournament. Uh, you know, you can say that it's been mediocre in sporting terms, and it has been. Uh, but against that, you've got things like Iceland beating England. You've got, well, I mean, I'm from Ireland, so I mean, maybe Ireland beating Italy isn't quite as memorable to other people, but to me it is. You've got that sort of uh, thing uh, with these, these smaller countries, which, you know, maybe some of the bigger countries haughtily say are clogging up and cluttering up the competition, and really the competition doesn't start until they've all been booted out. Uh, you can understand why Germany looked at it that way, uh, but from the point of view of the countries who actually get to participate, um, it's actually a lot better this way. I do think it's gone on a little bit too long, though. I mean, I could see that on the, um, for instance, the Italian media is barely was barely covering the final. It's as though Italy got knocked out so long ago that they can barely remember that this thing is still going on. You know, it's, it's it, it does drag on a bit. I mean, it's as long as the World Cup now. Um, but you know, uh, I think there was I think there was some <clears throat> there's some good to go alongside all the mediocrity. Ken, um, I have to ask you a question that doesn't involve the play on the field, but, um, you know, the hosts France were in line to win uh, this tournament that seemed to have this extra element since the Stade de France was sort of involved in the terrible uh, terrorist incident uh, that happened eight months ago. They didn't win. Uh, what was the response? I mean, what was the mood uh, in Paris after the loss last night? Well, I, I don't think they were too bothered about it. And um, to be honest, Paris isn't, <laughs> Paris isn't really a football city. Uh, and France isn't really, of, of the big European countries, France is probably the least interested in football. The crowd at the Stade de France um, last night was obviously 80, 85% French. But it was the Portuguese fans who made all the noise. They were singing continually throughout it. So it was a kind of a big event crowd. It was, oh, France are in this thing, we're in the final. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, it was that kind of a day tripper type crowd. I think the main thing from France's point of view will be relief that nothing happened during this tournament mm -hmm. because there was such, such fear that that, that that was going to happen. Again, I mean, you could see the security presence, you know, everywhere, not just at the games, every train station, you've got soldiers walking around. There's just this really visible militarized police and army presence everywhere, which I suppose is, is meant to be reassuring, but this kind of, you know, it seeps into you after a while, just seeing, you know, people going around with, uh, with machine guns everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I think mainly they'll just be happy that, that the security operation went well, uh, that there wasn't any, any big incidents, that everybody came here, had a good time, um, that the French themselves had a good time. They did get a good run for their money. Um, you know, they've got, they've got a, a likable enough young team that looks like it might go on to do something good. You know, they got a, a hero in Antoine Griezmann. Um, they got all the way to the final. They beat Germany. There's a lot to like about it. They didn't, they, they didn't do it in the end, but I don't think they'd be heartbroken about it. I think overall, um, if they'd been offered this at the beginning of this tournament, they would have been delighted to uh, hear that was the way it was going to work out. All right, last um, question from me. 
at the beginning of the tournament, getting back to Ronaldo, he said a pretty dickish thing about Iceland, saying they didn't try anything. They were just defend, 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 and playing on the counterattack when they don't try to play and just defend, defend, defend. This, in my opinion, shows a small mentality and they are not going to do anything in the competition. Well, A, that was wrong, and B, Portugal faced the same critique at the end of the tournament, which is sort of a delicious irony. Do you think it's fair to throw his words back at him and say, like, your team was doing the exact same thing you were saying as small-minded? Yeah, um, I mean, it, they have been. I mean, I think, obviously, what Ronaldo said about Iceland was completely stupid. And I think um, I think the problem there was that Ronaldo just had no idea what Iceland was. <laughs> like, he probably thought Iceland... I, I honestly believe that he, he sort of just assumed that Iceland was something a bit like Sweden. You know, like oh, I a, thought you meant country. like a frozen custard stand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, he knew that they were some, you know, some northern country, but I don't think he realized that they were sort of the size of a suburb in Lisbon, you know, uh, that that this <laughs> that that their presence here uh, was pretty amazing, that, that for them to get a nil-all draw against Portugal was a phenomenal result for them. Uh, I don't think Ronaldo really understood that. I'm not sure how how closely he sort of follows that kind of stuff. I mean, I, you know, also what he says is it's just, it's kind of automatic in a, in a way for him to say that sort of stuff if he's questioned. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you'll you'll hear being said at Real Madrid every couple of, every time they get a poor result in the Spanish league, it's, oh, you know, they just they just defend that they're a small team. You know, it's it's kind of almost an automatic script, I'd say, that he, that he went into. It was wrong. Uh, actually, uh, Iceland did Portugal a big favor. Well, they did them a very big favor um, by uh, scoring in the last minute against Austria. Iceland scored a breakaway goal against Austria, which meant that Iceland qualified ahead of Portugal, which meant that Portugal went into the easy half of the draw. Iceland went into the half of the draw that had, you know, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, England, and so on. Of course, England, uh, they made short work of. But Portugal, as a result of Iceland scoring that late breakaway goal, ended up having to play Croatia, Poland, and Wales to get to the final. So would they have won in the same half? I'm not sure. Maybe Ronaldo will, in hindsight, thank Iceland for the small part they played in his uh, his triumph. I'm sure he will. Uh, Ken Early is a columnist for the Irish Times, and he does the second Captain's podcast. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. And Ken, I just want to note that the uh, Portuguese city of Sintra, quite literally a suburb of Lisbon, has more people than Iceland. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a beautiful place. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This weekend in San Jose, five young women tumbled, vaulted, uneven barred, and balance beamed their way onto the U.S. gymnastics team for the Rio Olympics. 
That fivesome is Simone Biles, the three-time all-around world champion and first-time Olympian, Ali Raceman, who won three medals at the 2012 Olympics, Gabby Douglas, who won individual gold in 2012, Madison Koshin, the defending world championships gold medalist in uneven bars, and Laurie Hernandez, who at 16 will be competing at her first major senior-level international event in Rio. As those many bios suggest, this will be a formidable bunch, one that's heavily favored to repeat the team gold medal performance of 2012's Fierce Five, while Simone Biles, maybe along with Katie Ledecky, is probably the biggest favorite to win individual gold in the entire U.S. Olympic contingent. Joining us now is beloved former Slate staffer and occasional Slate gymnastics correspondent, Megan O'Rourke. Hey, Megan. Hey, Josh. Glad to be here. So this weekend in San Jose, you saw a team that, even though they were competing against themselves and not against other countries, it looked dominant. And we are in an era now where U.S. women's gymnastics is ascendant. It's on top of the world. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, as the commentators said several times, we could almost send two teams, right? I mean, we have a, we could only send five five gymnasts on a team, but we have probably ten really strong gymnasts. There were actually fourteen girls who competed on Friday, and we only even saw nine of them on NBC. I feel really terrible for those five other girls who've worked very very hard, and this was going to be their one moment in the limelight, and they got edited out. We have a couple of factors. One is since the nineteen eighties, gymnastics has become you know incredibly popular. In the United States, thanks first to the popularization of Nadia Comaneci, and then, of course, the wonderful Mary Lou, who stuck her vault to win, you know, against all odds, to win the first American gold medal, which was, you know, just when I was becoming a gymnast. And then what's happened since then is with the dissolution of the Soviet bloc, we got a lot of really great coaches, mm-hmm. um, you know, came here and really amped up and bumped up the the American program, um, including, of course, Bella Caroli and Marta Caroli, who were already here. They were they were Mary Lou's coaches. So we had this great influx of, of coaching talent and um, former gymnastics talent like Ling Chao, too, who came from China, who was on the, the team there. And, you know, we have a great advantage, which is we have a huge population. And then finally, USA Gymnastics has done something really smart, which is that they've moved Marta Caroli. They've, they've created a position called US, uh, the National Team Coordinator. So instead of having this one coach, we have Marta is a coordinator working with all of these different coaches, uh, which is not how it used to be. And that has worked very well for a kind of plurality of gymnasts. It lets gymnasts work with the coaches they've known for a long time, but get that kind of finishing polish at Camp Caroli. They all go, everyone on the team goes, I think, twice a month or once a month for a week. I can't remember what the exact details are. To Camp Caroli, as it's called, and they get this kind of workover from Marta, who, as you heard, is what she values is consistency, right? And it's really worked well. It also has allowed them to kind of outsource choreography so that, you know, if one coach isn't as strong on choreography, they 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 work on making that choreography even better. And it's just added incredible depth and, yes, consistency. <laughs> Though we didn't see it so much last night um, to the American team. No, they all fell off the beam. That's and pretty consistent. Yeah, well, that's true. It's true. They were consistently <laughs> they were... falling and consistently out of bounds. When Simone went, I was like, well, at least we know Simone won't fall. And she fell. <laughs> she fell. I there know. was a year in ice skating in that it, it, they seem to come and go. And I think that the level of difficulty catches up. 
up with the ability to execute all the moves and yeah. there is this need to have this extra difficulty. I was shocked that Simone Biles yeah. fell. I've been getting well, the, into gymnastics a lot. But it seems like the other gymnasts are just – you can't say with a 95 percent certainty they're going to be able to execute the difficult task they set for themselves. Well, there's a trade-off at this point, especially with the new scoring system that was brought in that values difficulty more. There's a trade-off for them about pushing up the difficulty and getting that higher execution score versus – taking out one of those moves and being safer but mm-hmm. not falling. And the thing is they tend to make the decision to go toward difficulty because the bump up is just so potentially huge. We also have to remember they've competed so much in the past two months. They had two competitions they, you know, early in June, and a lot of them were really hitting things. I think a lot of them were exhausted last yeah. night. Mike, when you mentioned the deficiency of the commentators, I have to say that I – felt very frustrated at that because it seemed that the cameras were really focusing in on stepping outside of the bounds on the on the floor exercises and, and falling off the beam, which I guess happened because I always fast forward the beam because it makes me too nervous to watch. Huh. But they were not, I think they were doing that in part because it's so easy, you know, any fool can see if somebody steps off the mat. Um, but we were getting no help at all. We don't even. It's, I could see that people were tumbling. Yes, but I didn't know what what they what passes what they were executing. The vaults were spectacular, but we were barely told what it was, was they were going for. It was bizarrely. First of all, they were bizarrely quiet during the routines. Mm-hmm. I thought I kept thinking, explain what that passes, mm-hmm. and, you know. And then the, there was no technical. It was like they had done no prep. Like there yeah. was none of that NBC pulling away and being like, this is what an Aminar vault is, or yeah. this is what a two and a half turn. You know, she's doing the two and a half, you couldn't even, they didn't even tell you sometimes how many turns they right. were doing. No. And I think if you're a lay viewer, it's hard, yeah. hard to see think that. Think about the tech, right. I think Daggett is deficient because it seems like he just wants to be in good with the gymnastics community and not <laughs> offend anyone. I mean, that's the impression I got. I know nothing about him personally. And Nastia Luke is certainly well-spoken and, and has a lot of charisma. She'll, she'll get better. But think about all the gigas that NBC could have done and maybe will do in the Olympics. I bet a they superimposed, will. like perfect totally. vault compared mm-hmm. with what we saw. Totally. So I'm just hoping that they're saving it for Rio. Me but too. they did not do a good job, especially well, with a sport that people don't they have a little bit of an understanding of certainly there are a lot of gymnasts, but they really need a lot more help than with swimming. Yeah. You know? yeah. Counterpoint here, Mike. Um, wherever there's an announcer, there's a producer in his or her ear telling them what to say. And NBC for generations has treated gymnastics just kind of like everyone else does as a sport that's less about technical prowess and more about emotion and you know pressure mm-hmm. and let's f- let's zoom in so oh, you can God. see the like Endless individual teardrops. Gabby Moms. Douglas drinking water yeah. from their back Give to the camera. <laughs> yeah. I didn't believe for a second that Gabby Douglas was truly in danger of not making the yeah. team. I mean, yeah. if she'd fallen off everything, sure. Yeah. But exactly. it felt like that was fake, fake, fake uh, pressure, tension. And, and it did seem like it was a producer's decision not to give us more detailed commentary about what was going on. And it felt to me like a mistake. I'm sure you're right that there will be lots more, you know, gimmicks in Rio. But this was a warm-up for us viewers too. You know, they needed to help us already to understand 
what they were doing, not just to say that Simone Biles is the greatest, but tell us why. Give us yeah. a clue. No, I think Megan, they never even explained. Megan, expl- tell us why Simone Biles is the greatest. <laughs> She's just, well, I mean, look, talk about consistency, but also look how high she gets off the vault. I mean, that vault was really one of the most extraordinary pieces of gymnastics we, we saw in a while, which Tim Daggett did say, but that was about it. And it's very strange, especially given there were two nights, to just keep putting mm-hmm. up that one graphic of like who was going to compete on which event. I was like, we've seen this graphic like 400 times yeah. now. But Simone Biles, for example, in her floor routine, there's a tumbling move. She and there was one other gymnast who seems to have done it before, but it's been called the Biles because she's the one who really has pioneered it in competition at this level. Where she does a double back layout with a half twist at the very end. Do you remember this? So she's coming out of it and landing blind and starting the twist really late, which is so hard to land. You could so easily fly forward like Ali Raisman did in that mm-hmm. one pass and just not make your landing because you can't see it. So that's one thing that makes her very distinctive, just her her kind of physical um – you know, just she can just do almost anything. You know, there's a video going around, which which if you haven't seen is worth it's like a little gif almost of uh, someone basically said to her, hey, Simone, in practice, why don't you try doing a double double off the beam? OK, so that's a double back flip with a double twist. <laughs> and she was like, no one's done it. And she's like, that's crazy. I'm going to die. And the coach you're, is like, oh. You're scaring June right now. Okay. Oh. So it's like, you should do it. Just do it. Just do it. And so then she's like, okay, fine. And Did she, she just, do it on the, on the high beam or the practice beam? She does it off the high beam. Oh, my God. And lands it. Like, first of all, gets all the way around, yeah. which is the hard part. And lands You know, she's on a practice mat, so it's a, a very fluffy mat. But so not she kind foam of pillows. doesn't stick yeah. it or anything. But you're just like, that's the kind of physicality yeah. and ability she has that it would have been great for them to talk about. Yeah. Much more of that. Yeah. Well, even, you know, watching the floor exercises, it was very clear with her that she doesn't do or doesn't appear to do what has become for me as a once every four years viewer of gymnastics – just kind of the end of the of the artistry of it, where they do they do their tumbling passes, they pause and kind of psych Get themselves <laughs> out, psych themselves up, and then go for another. T- and she doesn't do that. No. There's an, there actually is an artistry, even though she is supremely athletic. You don't have those pauses. It doesn't just feel like she's just doing some stuff so she can catch her breath to do more tumbling. Absolutely. So I think one thing that. I I thought this was some of the best – this was the best gymnastics I have ever seen, really. And, you know, one – and I also just watched the Hartford Secret Classic. So I had watched that about a week ago. And What kind of classic? It's called The Secret, which is, you know, the the Oh, strong enough for a man, but named (laughs) – made for Simone Biles. It does sound a little bit weird, like the Secret Classic. You have to get special passes. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But I've been very excited by this group for exactly the reason you're saying, which is that there's been this kind of culture war in gymnastics between athleticism and artistry and with the revision to the code of points a lot of certain you know people who really value artistry have been like oh they're just kind of throwing difficulty on the mm-hmm. table and they're doing it kind of in a plodding way and you noticed especially I think in the last Olympics a lot of pauses on the yep. beam a lot of stopping catching the breath before you do it and there were a couple gymnasts here Ali Raisman Simone Biles a few of the others Madison Koshin on on some of the other events where you just saw that fluidity they mm-hmm. were so fit they were so confident and with Simone, what's really extraordinary is she's doing some of the most difficult stuff and you never feel that awkward like, oh, God, I got to gear myself up here. Yeah. Or I got to like take three breaths because I don't have the oxygen. Well, uh, Megan, in the piece that you wrote in uh, The Atlantic, you talked about how one of the big changes that's happened is that they are, the, you know, the sort of the, the challenges that they set themselves in, as far as conditioning goes it, are far higher, that they're just in better shape than gymnasts have typically been, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, 
first of all, we know a lot more about conditioning. If you think about all sports, in some ways it's been interesting. And in a way, even though, you know, as you were saying, Josh, uh, NBC kind of focuses on the emotional pressure and all this stuff. In some ways, women's gymnastics is very interesting because it's foregrounded a lot of changes that have happened in terms of specialization for one thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, but also conditioning. They were, you know, it was very early that Bella Corley like turned to conditioning for these little 13-year-old girls um, and said, you know, and so they're really thinking about nutrition, conditioning. They're they're letting them recover off injuries longer, mm-hmm. I think, and being much smarter about that. So I think it's made a difference to this group of girls. I mean, think about how high, by the way, that's the graphic I want. I need the distance from the Mm -hmm. floor that Simone Biles Mm -hmm. gets, and I need that as a multiple of height, and then I need to compare that to NBA players. I've been looking (laughs) for this. There is no distance off the floor. You also need to compare it to Michaela Maroney from 2012. Totally, totally. We do see the superimposed gifts of, you know, uh, Simone over a Nadia Comaneci or an Olga Corbett routine, and that goes to your conditioning point. They did three passes on the floor. Right. Their uh, the actual tumbles were th- were were wouldn't not only would not they wouldn't be Olympic qualifying tumbles, no. right? They couldn't if you were an okay gymnast from Azerbaijan doing Olga Corbett's perfect 10 routine, you could not make the Olympics now. That's crazy. I do want to ask you one question. All this stuff about Marta Caroli and conditioning and genius and yet, what about the men's team? We're okay. It's yeah. it's just that we don't have the pool of gym. We America doesn't have the pool of willing male gymnasts like we do female gymnasts. I think that's part of it. I also think they haven't gotten it together organizationally in quite the same way. I mean, this is where, as controversial as the Crowleys have been, like they've really managed to create a system for women's gymnastics that's you know. There's a lot of debate about because there are these allegations of you know quasi abusiveness and things like that. Um, more against Bella, but they have found a way to create a semi-centralized training system, right, kind of using things from the Soviet approach, but bringing in the best of kind of American individualism, as it were. I don't know. what the, I don't know enough about the men's. I haven't been following this team, but it's true. Like, they just, they're much more inconsistent. There's some talented people. I think we don't have that same sense of little boys wanting to be gymnasts, yeah. for sure. Many more sports that they could. Yeah. Yeah. One thing just about the tumbling is, you know, the floor mats now are way bouncier. (laughs) (laughs) Nadia would have gotten more height. You couldn't do the things. There was no no one would have physically been. But they've got they've got, you know, the equipment has evolved a lot on the bars. The bars have a lot of fiberglass in them that bounce and are more flexible. Yeah. Um, The vault's not just a repurposed horse. (laughs) Exactly. And the the floor mat has like real spring in it. It was interesting that white floor mat, um, you know, uh, Simone Biles was saying she found it hard to see. Oh. And I was wondering if that was part of why so many of them went out of bounds. Interesting. Um, All right. Last um, question for the group here. After she won the event, Simone Biles, Andrea Joyce from NBC asked her, like, oh, you guys are going to be the sequel to the Fierce Five. Like, what should your name be? And Simone was like, uh, (laughs) Fierce Five, the part two, next generation. And Andrea was like, You've got a month to think about it. It's like, wow, <laughs> that's a, a mean. <laughs> th- that's a little mean. like you know, she's only the best gymnast of all time. Like we shouldn't get too mad at her her naming prowess. But Mike Pesca's here. This is, this is a guy who I feel com- more comfortable putting on the spot. He's a branding what, genius. 
what is uh, what what's the the marketing uh, for for this year's Quinta? They they bring the brio to Rio. Oh, I screw that up. <laughs> they they bring the brio to Rio. Um, the depollution of um, I, you know, it's 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 a good question. I hated the Fierce Five. It just seemed so, or as a name, yeah. it just seemed like let's take the. This is okay. I got it. You ready? I got it. The Fleek Five. <laughs> <laughs> I Just, thought you were going to go with the Dave Clark five. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, then it would be uh, named after the drummer, I think. <laughs> Maybe they should be the riotous five. Ooh. Ha, ha, ha. That doesn't really make sense. Um, <laughs> I know. There's I, a limited number of possibilities. Yeah. Fiercest. Yeah. Fiercest five. All right. Well, we, we've all got a uh, few more weeks, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. Yeah. As Andrea said. <laughs> um, Megan is working on a book about gymnastics, which oh, will – Hopefully, uh, be able to read in time for Tokyo, right? Yes, the hopefully for Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> and Megan also wrote a great review of the Devorah Myers book, The End of the Perfect Ten, that is in The Atlantic. So everyone should check that out. Megan O'Rourke, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. All right, now it is time for After Balls. And there was a woman in the gymnastics trials who finished fourth, I believe. They take five, but... Marta Caroli and the powers that be in gymnastics don't just take the top five. They pick whoever they want to pick. And so the fourth place finisher, Michaela Skinner, is not going to Rio. She's maybe going as an alternate, but she's not on the the top five team. But Mike has done some investigative reporting and, Mm -hmm. and has a fact about her that NBC was too afraid to mention. That's right. They kept putting her name up and it looked like Michaela. But actually, how she... I don't know if you'd say spells or capitalizes it. It's, it's my, you stylize it. It's my Kayla. M, little Y, big K, little A, little Y, little L, little A. <laughs> She's known as Mickey, M-I-K-K-I. I don't know how she got that. My Kayla. My Kayla. All right, Mike. M-I, big K, little A. Yeah. yeah. What is your my Kayla? I take you to the Orlando Summer League. It was funny. I was watching a lot of the Orlando Summer League action, and it is shot. It is in the Orlando Magic's practice facility. There are sun streaming through the window. There are 12 people in attendance. The camera apparently is like three feet onto the court. And as I was watching it, my girlfriend's like, why are you watching high school basketball? Actually, these are aspiring and in some cases very good NBA players. The same summer league in Las Vegas, same level of play because it's in the Thomas and Max Center and shot professionally, scans as actual professional basketball. So this year, the uh, Orlando Summer League was not full of the top players. In fact, an account of it or a preview of it on uh, the puremagic.com site noted Before play began, at one end of the NBA spectrum, there's a free agency frenzy, a chaotic time when veteran players are lavishly courted by teams desperate to make a splash. 
and then they contrast it with this is at the extreme other end of the NBA spectrum. This is basically like a house organ of the summer league denigrating said league. There are the summer leagues, a time in the offseason when overlooked and undervalued players scratch and fight through most of July for the opportunity to scratch and fight again in training camp. Now, the fascinating thing about the Orlando Summer League was you don't think of the Orlando Magic as a team with so much talent, they don't know what to do with it, and yet they fielded two summer league teams. There was the Orlando Magic white and the Orlando Magic blue. And coming into the tournament, all bets were on the Orlando Magic blue. In fact, the Orlando Magic blue was coached by actual members of the Orlando Magic staff, had actual players who were taken in the NBA draft, and were seen as the main Orlando Magic uh, product. Of course, the Orlando Magic White went undefeated into the finals, and there they staged a game for the ages. I will read you some of the pros about the fascinating final game of the Orlando Summer League. Orlando Magic White, a team full of free agent and development league hopefuls, saw its dream of a perfect week and an unlikely championship come to an end in heartbreaking fashion. What heartbreaking fashion? Sudden death fashion. Yes, summer league rules have it that if a game goes into double overtime, we've seen all that we could see <laughs> in that regular period in the overtime. We don't need to see an event. It's really the players are there to be evaluated. After a regular period in overtime, we can glean no more information. So this second overtime is a sudden death overtime, which is a great little tidbit of basketball. And in fact, this is the second time that Memphis won in sudden death. The shot was made by Russ Smith. I believe the Russ Smith formerly of Louisville. He won the game in overtime against the upstart Magic White. How did the Orlando Magic Blue do? The much heralded Blue, the Blue where the real coaching staff coached. They were one and three and gave up 46 more points than they scored. (laughs) Thank you. M-I, capital K, lowercase e. June Thomas, Mm. what is your Michaela? So my Michaela is inspired by having watched the Olympic gymnastics trials last night and really longing for not actual sports action, but some sports emotion, some sports melodrama. And so my thoughts turned to the great gymnastics TV show, Make It or Break It, 48 episodes of this marvelous show were aired over three seasons. It was created by Holly Sorensen, a fine TV producer, and it told the story of four emerging elite gymnasts, Payson Keeler, Kaylee Cruz, Lauren Tanner, an insurgent outsider, Emily Kometko. <laughs> and it focused on the goings-on, an elite training center for elite gymnasts, The Rock, as it was known in short. And it was a kind of predictable, you know, as I say, melodramatic storylines, eating disorders, the need to focus exclusively on gymnastics, uh, the expense and the impact on their families, secret boyfriends, relationships with coaches, this kind of thing. But it was great television. It was kind of building up to the 2012 Olympics, uh, just like every other focus of of gymnastics that we outsiders at least pay attention to then the show had some problems Uh, the character the actress playing Emily Kometko got pregnant 
And was that the insurgent outsider, Emily <laughs> so Kometko? The insurgent outsider, wow. Emily Kometko, got pregnant. And so Chelsea Hobbs had to kind of drop out because it's really hard to do the um, the tumbling moves when you're preg. And you also can't uh, write it into the storyline because there's no way you can recover from uh, a child uh, from giving birth and then take part in the next Olympics. Um, but one of the things I did once speak with Heli Sorensen, and she told me that the stand-ins who did the more complicated uh, gym moves for the actresses could easily do the moves that won the likes of Nadia Comaneci and Olga Corbett gold medals. So make it or break it kind of faded out. Uh, I warn you that it doesn't have the kind of climactic end that you might have hoped for, but 48 episodes, all packed with fantastic drama, and it's available on the Freeform app. That is now the name of the channel formerly known as ABC Family and also currently viewable on Hulu. So I heartily recommend Make It or Break It. So Mike, being able to do Olga Corbett's winning routine Mm -hmm. cannot get you on the Kazakhstan Olympic team, but it can get you a job as a stand-in on a no longer extant uh, (laughs) TV show about gymnastics. As well it should. I'd rather have the second distinction than the first. Hey, Josh, what's your my, Kayla? (laughs) Thank you for asking. And there's a list that is being updated on the daily about which athletes are not competing in the Rio Olympics. We've got some tennis players. John Isner is one who's cited scheduling reasons. Same for uh, Feliciano Lopez, another Spanish player. You've got some of your NBA stars like Steph Curry, LeBron, uh, Anthony Davis, Blake Griffin, some scheduling, some injury concerns. Uh, You've got uh, a couple marathoners due to scheduling, Wilson Kipsang, Dennis Cometo. But by far the largest category is rich male golfers. So here is my list. We just had Jordan Spieth, as we were recording this podcast, it was announced that he's not going to play. He hasn't given a statement yet, but um, it's apparently for, quote, health reasons. Dustin Johnson said in a statement, this wasn't an easy decision for me, but my concerns about the Zika virus cannot be ignored. Jason Day said the sole reason for my decision is my concerns about the possible transmission of the Zika virus and the potential risks it may present to my wife's future pregnancies. Rory McIlroy, after speaking with those closest to me, I've come to realize that my health and my family's health comes before anything else, even though the risk of infection from the Zika virus is considered low. It is a risk nonetheless and a risk I'm unwilling to take. And then finally, Vijay saying, I would like to play the Olympics, but the Zika virus, you know, dot, dot, dot. I think that pretty much sums it up. I think the Vijay Singh one was the most honest in the kind of half-ass yeah. way that he cited the the Zika virus. He didn't even, uh, you know, f- bother finishing the sentence. I am really annoyed at these golfers, Jin. And I think right. that the the new test that we have, it's always, oh, is this a Olympic sport? Should, you know, squash be in the Olympics? Should softball, you know, should it be back? What about wrestling? Oh, we've got to save wrestling. The real test is in the face of an extremely minor health risk, will the athletes want to go to the games anyway? And so I think this is the first 
time uh, since the very early 1900s that golf has been in the Olympics. This definitely proves that that was the wrong decision, that golf should not be uh, an Olympic sport. And the obvious test here is, you know, what about women golfers? They're all of, you know, or, or mostly of childbearing age. What do they say? None of them have pulled out and none of them has cited the Zika virus. Like this tournament is actually really important to them because they're not great riches in women's golf. This is would be a huge uh, victory and honor for them. And June, as an Olympic, maybe um, the world's leading Olympics fan, <laughs> I think you can agree that the real test is, is it meaningful for the athletes in the sport? Do they care about it more than any other event on the calendar? Is it a championship that's kind of held up above all others? In this case... It is definitely not. And it just really annoys me when these like rich, some of the like most rich and famous athletes in the world, I think they're lying about what they perceive the risk of Zika to be as an excuse because they just can't be bothered. You think 56-year-old Vijay Singh, who has been married to his <laughs> wife since 1985, is not that worried about procreating with a 50-something-year-old woman? Mike, I have to correct you. He's only 53. Okay. He's a young man. The Zika virus, you know. He could have carried the Fijian uh, flag, you know. Uh, I, Josh, I am in full agreement with you because I have often said that I don't even think tennis should be in the Olympics. If if the tournament, if the Olympics is not the peak competition in that sport, it doesn't belong. The point still stands. These golfers are not uh, doing right by the Olympics. They're not doing right by themselves. They're not doing right by the public health world. There are some risks, obviously, associated with the Zika virus, but they are overstating them. And that's bad. Bad job, golfers. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thank you, June Thomas, for filling in today. Thank you for having me. We love me. you, June. <laughs> Thank you. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.